verses 1 and 2, which remind us again of how Almighty God is near to those who are humble and lowly. And so with that, let's listen now to the reading of God's word. And Jen, if you want to come on up and start us. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Matthew 5, 1 through 8. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 37. All this came upon, excuse me, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. 
Beloved, did you know that pride is the most odious thing to God? If God despises anything in us, he despises pride. Now, why would he despise pride so much? Why is pride such an, such an issue for us to come into the presence of God, for us to know God? Well, the basic reason is because pride is the most basic denial that our hearts can make of God being God and us being creatures, right? Because what pride says, what pride wants to do, what pride wants to say is pride wants to say, I can take care of myself. Pride wants to say, I know best. Pride wants to say, I'm in control. All of these things are what pride says. When, in truth, the only one who is actually in control is God. The only one who is actually supreme is God. The only one who actually knows everything is God. God is the king. He is the creator. He is the almighty. He is the eternal one. He is above everything that exists. And we, we are made of dust. We are ashes. We are here for the shortest amount of time, and then we die. How foolish it is for us, beloved, to be proud. How foolish it is for us to think highly of ourselves, to think that we can get through life on our own knowledge, on our own understanding, on our own strength, our own capability, and to think that God himself is just kind of an accessory, just kind of a sideshow. Maybe, you know, a nice thing to have for when times are hard or something like that. This is exactly the, up, the upside-down way that we are supposed to look at the world. When we look at the world rightly, we see how supreme God is, how almighty he is, how glorious, how perfect, how all-sufficient he is. And we see how much just made of nothing we are, how absolutely dependent we are, how much we need God. When we're looking at the world in that way, then we are seeing the world rightly. And to whatever extent we don't look at the world in that way, we are deceived. We are mistaken. Our thinking is messed up. And yet the world has become such a fallen place. The world has become such a messed up place that I know that I, standing here, the one speaking to you now, doesn't always view the world rightly. And I know that This audience that I'm speaking to right now, this congregation, I know that none of you view the world rightly. I know that all of us, when we wake up in the morning, we like to think, I can make it through this day. I can set my own agenda. I can accomplish my own plans. And maybe a few minutes down the road, if we're lucky, if God's gracious to us, then we'll think, oh, I should pray. Oh, I I need God's wisdom. I should look at his word. Oh, I, I, need, I need fellowship with God this morning to give me strength. In other words, maybe eventually each day we'll wake up to reality. We'll wake up to how dependent we really are upon God. But sadly, for most of us, days can turn into weeks. Weeks can turn into months. Months can even turn into years where we hardly pray, where we hardly look to God in his word. And all of this is evidence of one thing. It is evidence of pride. It is evidence that we think that we are sufficient in ourselves and that God himself is just some kind of sideshow. Again, some kind of nice-to-have accessory. And so it is critical for us, beloved, to be aware of the temptation to pride in our own hearts, to be aware of how easily it is for us to be deceived. 
of how much we like to be flattered, of how much we like to think that we do have it all together, that we are good, that we don't really need God all the time. We must grow in humility. All of us must grow in humility. I myself must grow in humility. And indeed, this is a a message that I myself just kind of have to tremble to proclaim, knowing that I myself, a proud person, (laughs) am up here to address the subject of humility. I mean, woe upon me if I'm not aware of the dangers of my own heart. And I pray that God will make you aware of the dangers of your own heart. And so let's look together again at these verses in 1 Peter 5. Starting in chapter 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about the verse is really just about the context of these verses as a whole. And and this is something that in itself is kind of amazing to me, that in this letter of 1 Peter, where Peter has taken so much time to talk about the suffering of the church, the difficulty of the Christian life, how everyone who tries to follow Jesus is going to suffer and is going to encounter difficulty, here in these closing words of his letter, when he's most thinking of like, okay, What's the most important thing that I need to remind them of? How can I bring this all to a conclusion? How can I bring this all to a capstone? He says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. In other words, what he is most concerned about here as he comes to the conclusion of his letter, what he most wants to urge upon his listeners is the nature of the church, is how the church exists together as a culture of humility, humility toward one another. And we know that he is talking about the church, both because he uses the words here, one another, and where is this letter read except in church gatherings, right? So when this letter is read in church gatherings, and he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, what you're supposed to do is look to who's on your left, who's on your right, and say, okay, this is who I clothe myself with humility towards, towards other people in the church. But we also know he's talking about the church because in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5, he's just been talking about the elders of the church. So he's, talk, he's spoken about the elders of the church, and now he's moving from instructions for the elders to instructions for everyone in the church. And what are his instructions for everyone in the church? His instructions are that everyone in the church clothe yourselves with humility. Now, isn't it amazing that of all the difficulties of the Christian life, of all the different instructions and challenges that Peter has exhorted these Christians through, again, in these closing words, in these closing sentences, he's coming back to this idea of the church and how the church needs to be a place where we are clothed with humility for one another. Beloved, the church is so crucial for the Christian life. If we want to walk faithfully to King Jesus throughout our lives, through the good times, through the bad times, through ups and downs, if we want to walk faithfully at all times, then we need the church. We need a community where everyone is clothed in humility toward one another. This is the nature of the church. This is the calling of the church. And why is it that Peter in particular highlights this quality of humility? I mean, again, of all the different qualities that he's exhorted the Christians to have throughout this letter, why humility? 
Well, I think it goes back to the way that I opened, is that Peter recognizes that humility is really the fountain of every other virtue in the Christian life. And that pride is the enemy of every other virtue in the Christian life. But we are to grow in any kind of grace in Jesus Christ. We are to grow as human beings at all. What we most need is humility. Because only as we have humility will we listen to God as God. Will we treat him as Lord? Will we walk in his ways? Now, I think that one way that Scripture shows that humility is so fundamental to living for God is how fundamental humility itself is to coming to Jesus Christ in the first place. Now, I hope that everyone in this room is familiar with the gospel message. The heart of the gospel message is that Jesus Christ came to earth He died a sinner's death and he rose again from the dead so that anyone who puts their faith in him, who trusts that his death is our death to sin and his resurrection is newness of life for us, if we have faith in that message, then we will be saved. Now, to believe that message, to receive that message of Christ's death for us, his resurrection from the dead for us, the most fundamental thing it requires is humility. Okay, if you're not willing to say, I am a sinner, if you're not willing to say, I needed a savior, I need someone to die the death that I deserve, if you're not willing to say that, if you think, you know what, I'm basically okay, I think I can figure this out on my own, if that's your heart's attitude, you cannot have Christ, you cannot be saved. But the moment you're willing to, from the heart, Just totally die to yourself. Just totally say, Lord, I finally realize that I really am nothing. I finally realize that I really have messed up everything that I've done in my own wisdom. I I finally recognize that I cannot figure things out on my own, that I need a Savior. As soon as you come to that place, that is the first step of placing your faith, placing your trust in Jesus Christ to be that substitute for you, to be your Savior, to be the one who makes atonement for you. But again, if you don't acknowledge that you need atonement, if you don't acknowledge that you need a Savior, well then, God is far off from you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so the first reason why Peter centralizes on this call to humility within the church is because the very thing that forms the church, that makes us one body in Jesus Christ, the fact that we all have placed faith in Jesus Christ. The thing that makes us a church is, first and foremost, humility. Beloved, if you're here this morning, and especially if you're a member of this church, you should be acknowledging daily, you should be acknowledging this morning that you are a sinner. You should be acknowledging that you need help. You should be acknowledging that you don't have everything figured out. Again, this is what humility is. This is what humility looks like. And so when we as a church come together as people who, as Peter says, have been clothed with humility or are clothing ourselves with humility toward one another, it shapes everything about our community. It shapes everything about who the church is. You see, if we're all willing to say that we're sinners, if we're all willing to say we don't know best, the first thing that happens is that conflict loses its power, right? 
Because when I sin against you, I say something ugly, there's some argument that we have, and you say I did something wrong, no longer am I so proud to say, how dare you say I did something wrong? And we get in a huge argument about it. No. People who are humble say, you know what, you're right. I've messed up a million times. I'm sure I messed up here too. And the person who's bringing the charge can say the same thing. Like, yeah, I might have just totally understood it wrong because I always misunderstand things. You know, I I mess things up all the time. And so conflict loses its power as we are a people of humility, people who can just admit that we mess up a lot, that we're wrong all the time. Conflict loses its power. Serving loses its pressure. You know, if you're serving in children's ministry, if I'm up here preaching, people playing music, just the ministry that we have to one another, right? If we are a community of performance, a community of pride, then all of a sudden a lot of pressure comes along with those things, right? I got to think, oh, is my sermon going to be good enough this week? You know, I I really got to make sure it's just right. Or the people singing, they think, oh, I better not mess up any notes, not mess up any chords. And serving in children's ministry, you're thinking, oh, am I doing everything right? Because proud people, again, fundamentally think that they can do everything right. Proud people fundamentally think that, yeah, if I just work hard enough, I can get there and I'm not going to mess up at all. But a person who has been humbled, a person who has come under the grace of God, recognizes, you know what, I'm never going to do anything perfectly. And so all my service, I just serve in the strength that God gives. I just do the best that I can as a flawed, sinful creature. And and God is generous enough, kind enough to use me sometimes. And we just rejoice that God would use us. So we're not anxious about, am I doing everything right? Am I saying all the right things? So we're able to serve with joy, with freedom, not just under pressure of, am I doing everything right? In a community where everyone is clothed with humility, leadership loses its privilege. Okay, so no longer can I, as a leader, think, well, I'm a leader because I have more figured out than you do, right? That would just mean the leader is more proud than everyone else. (laughs) But in reality, in the Christian community, leaders are also to lead in humility. That is, the leaders, above all, should recognize just how messed up we are, how much in need of God's grace we are. And if we recognize that even more than you recognize that, then it will be impossible for for us to lead with any kind of domineering spirit or to lead in any way, expecting you to serve us or you to always listen to us. Because me and my humility, I know that I mess up again a thousand times a day that I don't always know best. And so leadership loses its privilege, its, its bite Authority is no longer this intimidating thing that we all must just somehow surrender to. But rather, authority becomes something that comes under others to build them up, to help them, rather than something that demands service for ourselves. And lastly, a community where everyone is clothed in humility, earthly status loses its significance. So let's say one person comes in here and they're a millionaire. They've been successful in business all their life. And someone else comes in here and they've been terrible with money all their life and they have nothing. Well, in the church, does the one who is wealthy suddenly have reason to boast or to lord over the one who has nothing? Again, because he's smarter, because he's a better person, because he has more figured out. Beloved, in the church, it cannot be. We're to be clothed in humility toward one another. So even if you have tons of money and somebody else has no money, you understand that before the cross... 
We are all level. That Jesus had to die equally for the rich man's sins as for the poor man's sins. There's no place for boasting. There's no place for arrogance of the rich over the poor, of one ethnicity over another ethnicity. Maybe one of you is more fashionable than another one, and the ones who are more fashionable have more to boast in because they have a better sense of fashion. We cannot boast in any earthly thing when we come into the church. When we come into the church, we come in recognizing, Jesus, you died for my sins. My sins put you on the cross. And that means that my whole life has been changed. And now I am a debtor to mercy all the days of my life. I have nothing to boast in. And so we clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. And when we clothe ourselves in humility toward one another, it also leads to enormous joy because when you're humble, you can laugh at yourself. When you're humble, you don't get embarrassed easily. When you're humble, you don't always have to talk about yourself and make sure others are serving you. You can just be about the business of serving others. This is the joy that comes from humility. This is the beauty that a community of humility creates. A place where people are always serving one another with joy, repenting whenever there is conflict, not pressuring one another to perform or to be a certain way because we recognize that we're all messed up, that we all need grace, that we all need a Savior, and that that is the very thing that binds us together. And notice in particular how Peter says that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. So it's not just something that we are to perform or that we're to work up, right? When Peter says, clothe yourselves, the image that he's giving us is of a garment that has already been prepared, right? A piece of clothing, a robe, whatever you want to think of, that's already been prepared that we are to put on. Clothe yourselves. That's what that verb communicates. And so when he says, clothe yourselves with humility, I think that what he is ultimately calling us to is to remember the humility of Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus Christ was the only person who ever lived who exhibited perfect humility at all times. And indeed, it's all the more amazing because he was the one person who ever lived who didn't need to communicate humility at all times because he was very God of very God. And yet, when he came, Philippians tells us that he put on the form of a servant. He put on humility. Indeed, he put on humility to the point of death on a cross. Beloved, the most shameful death the most embarrassing death that could ever be had, Jesus endured it. He was the pinnacle of humility. And so, beloved, as we think in our own lives, in our own community of how is it that we ourselves can be more humble, we must come at it with this mindset that it is clothes we put on. It is something that we adopt through Jesus Christ. It's not something that we just kind of gradually work towards. It's not a matter of our own effort. You see, even thinking about us putting effort towards humility is, in a sense, a denial of humility itself. It's, again, our pride, thinking that we are able to make ourselves humble. We are not even able to make ourselves humble. If we are to be humble, we must look to Jesus Christ, look to his perfect example of humility. And when we look to his perfect example, then we will be able to put it on like a garment prepared. Indeed, the the Greek verb that Peter uses here for clothe yourselves, it's the verb for tie on. It's the same verb that is used in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus is said to tie on a robe around his waist when he washed the disciples' feet. 
And so I just think Peter here, as he's encouraging humility in this Christian community, he himself is remembering that night when Jesus took off his garments, tied on a robe around his waist, and went about cleaning the disciples' feet. And Peter is probably even thinking of how when Jesus showed that kind of humility, at first Peter rejected it, right? Peter was saying, no, Lord, don't wash me. I'm going to wash you. But Jesus says, no, Peter, this is how I am to display righteousness at this time. This is how I'm to show you the way of humility. And so in the same way that Jesus Christ went about washing his disciples' feet, again, Lord of all, becoming servant of all, beloved, let us in the same way wash one another's feet, in the same way serve one another, in the same way count each other more significant than ourselves, put on humility toward one another, beloved. Don't think of yourself as most important. Don't think of yourself as the one to be served. Think of how you can serve others, how you can build others up. This is the heart of humility. This is what Jesus Christ himself shows us. And as we put on his example, as we come to him by faith, knowing that he is sufficient for us, we ourselves will grow in humility. So again, to just wrap up this this first point, to emphasize this first point one more time, if you want to come to Jesus Christ, you must come through the gate of humility, through the path of humility. There is no such thing as receiving Jesus Christ and being a proud person. And so let us all, in the humility that God gives us, come to Jesus Christ, admitting our sin, admitting that we don't have things figured out. And as we do that, we form a community of grace, a community of humility that is beautiful in every way. Now, Peter in these verses gives us three specific motivations toward humility that go beyond what I've just said. And so I do want to look at these three reasons that Peter gives us for humility to, again, by God's grace, may he use these words, may he use these motivations that Peter gives to create more humility in our own hearts. And so let's look at those three reasons that we see now in verses 5 to 7. So, starting at the beginning of verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And here's the first motivation that Peter gives. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I think he actually repeats the same motivation in verse 6 when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So notice what argument Peter is using there, how he's trying to motivate you to humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In other words, Peter's saying, do you want more grace from God? Do you want God's grace to be poured out on your life? If you want God's grace to be poured out, then you better be humble. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And again, verse 6 is the same logic. Do you want God to exalt you at the proper time? If you want God to exalt you, then humble yourselves, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. In other words, Peter is appealing to us to be humble on the basis of this reward. On the basis of God's grace being poured out. On the basis of us being exalted at the proper time. And so if there is this reward, if we will humble ourselves, and beloved, there is also a curse if we will not humble ourselves. Because God opposes the proud, 
And if we won't be exalted on that day of Christ's return, then the alternative is that we will be condemned if we do not humble ourselves. And so think of the curse that comes if you maintain your pride, if you maintain your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own abilities. And think about the blessing that comes if you give up those things, if you admit your faults, if you admit your need for a Savior, if you lean upon God in every way. If you do that, then you will receive grace. Then you will be exalted at the proper time. One thing that Peter has been zealous to communicate throughout his letter is the idea of the Christian life as a journey, as a narrative. Meaning that the way we live the Christian life right now is not how it will look forever. We go through this period of life that we have now and we are going to arrive at a destination. Someday we're going to come to the end of our journey. We're going to come face to face with the living God. That is the end of our journey. And our life after that will look totally different than our life before that. And so if humility is very difficult right now, because we do have to admit our faults, because we do have to put ourselves low before other people and we have to serve others, if it's difficult now, one way you can get through that difficulty is to think of the destination. Think of the fact that this life will not last forever, that the day is coming where if we humble ourselves here and now, then we will be exalted. We will receive praise and honor and glory from God. That's what Peter says in chapter 1. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, we will receive those things. And so, beloved, consider the future reward of walking in a humble way now. And not just the future reward, but when Peter says that God gives grace to the humble, I think he's talking about the grace that we can receive every day. Every day as we confess our sins to one another and to God. Every day as we say, I just want to serve others instead of being served. As we walk in humility in those ways, God's grace is poured out to meet us in those moments. We come to know God more. We come to know more of his power by walking in humility than we could possibly come to know if we don't depend on him, if we live on our own strength, if we live for ourselves. I mean, yeah, are there earthly rewards to looking out for yourself first and to elevating yourself above other people? Yeah, there's earthly rewards. You know, you can be the alpha male. You can be the big shot. You can be the one who gets all the credit. And that will feel good for a short while. But what happens when Jesus returns? What happens when the living and dead come before the judgment throne of God and God is going to give the reward to everyone according to their works? In that day, beloved, the person who's the big shot here, the person who is first of all, they are going to be last. They're going to be smallest. And the person who is the most humble, who served others the most, they are going to be placed first. That is what Jesus promises us. And so the first motivation to humility is to consider that reward. Go through the difficulty of a humble life here and now so that you can know the grace of God and so that you can receive his commendation at that final judgment. The second motivation that Peter gives us here is in verse 6 when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Under the mighty hand of God. Now, why does Peter say the mighty hand of God there? Well, beloved, I think if we're going to have any reason for humility, any motivation for humility, 
probably the very first motivation is just this idea that God is mighty, that he is powerful. Indeed, this phrase, mighty hand of God, is supposed to remind us specifically of the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament, where God sent plagues upon Egypt, where he killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, where he sent his angel of death and passed over his people and brought his people out and protected them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And then he parted the Red Sea for them. All these amazing miracles would said over and over again through that story of the Exodus is that God delivered his people with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. That's the phrase that's repeated over and over. And so Peter here, when he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, he's trying to remind us of just how mighty God is. That God performed all these amazing miracles throughout the Exodus to protect his people, to shelter his people, to condemn those who were the enemies of his people. And beloved, I think that if we remember that, if we remember the awesome power of God, this empowers us, this motivates us to be humble. Because again, we remember that we are dust. We remember that the very easiest miracle for God is impossible for us. And so if this is true, how humble should we be? I mean, if God is the infinite creator and we are creatures made of dust, what better reason is there to be humble? And so the second motivation for humility is just consider God's mighty hand. When you consider God's mighty hand, then you will be able to be humble. And then the third and last reason or motivation that Peter gives us for being humble is in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now I think this motivation actually works in two different ways. The first way is that sometimes we are proud precisely because we will not cast our anxieties on God or on anyone else. We are proud because we like the feeling of control that we can get when we can take care of ourselves, when we are trying to sort out our own problems, when we think we have all of our own answers, when we are sufficient in ourselves. When that is our attitude, when our anxieties are all upon us and we feel like we have everything under control, this is characteristic of a proud person. A humble person is a person who is able to cast their anxieties on another, particularly upon God. Beloved, if you have a hard time accepting help when other people offer to help you, you are a proud person. It is as we can cast our anxieties off of ourselves and on the other people that we learn the virtue of humility. And so the first way that Peter is telling us to to be humble here in verse 7 is to do this casting work, to say, I will trust God rather than myself with my anxieties, with my cares, with my troubles. And that's the first way that I think this command in verse 7 is supposed to help us to be humble as we cast our anxieties on him. But there's another way that verse 7 helps us to be humble as well. Sometimes we don't want to be humble because we are afraid that if we really go low, 
If we really just give ourselves in service to others, if we never stand up for ourselves and our own reputation, sometimes we worry, if we do that, what's going to happen to us? You know, are people just going to take advantage of us? Is everybody just going to laugh at us and think we're stupid? And so in that way, humility can seem like a, a terrible thing to our flesh. We don't want to be humble because we're afraid, ultimately, of who's going to look out for us if I don't look out for myself. Well, verse 7 reminds us that God cares for us. God is going to look after you. You can cast all your anxieties on him as you live a life of humility, as you do everything that you do in service to others, as you count others more significant than yourselves, as you live this life that Christ himself lived, yes, your life will get filled with anxieties because you see the troubles of other people and you see how much work there is to do. But when you get those anxieties, you have someone to cast them upon. You are able to turn to God And how precious are those words at the end of verse 7 when it says, because he cares for you. Beloved, this is the God that we receive when we come to Jesus Christ. This is the God that we receive when we come in humility, when we come saying, Lord, I am a sinner. It is my sin that put Jesus to death upon that cross. And I believe he took the punishment and I believe he rose from the dead and I believe that as I trust in him, I have eternal life. As we come to God in that way, we come to a God who cares for us. We come to a God who no longer is scorning us. He's not just looking down on us because we're so messed up because we have so much sin. When we come to God the Father through God the Son, We are accepted by God the Father in the same way that he accepts God the Son. And how is God the Son accepted? Just listen to the words of the Father for the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Beloved, this is God the Father's attitude toward you. If you have humbled yourself and come to Jesus Christ, he is well pleased with you. He cares for you. So cast your anxieties on him. If you carry them upon yourself, you are essentially being proud. You are essentially saying, I can take care of myself, and I don't believe you will, God. You are thinking yourself better than God, and God will oppose you. But if you will receive this promise of love from God the Father, that he cares for you through God the Son, and if you will take God up on this promise of love and say, God, I do believe that you care for me and I will cast my anxieties on you, if you will do that, then, beloved, God will pour out his grace upon you. You, know, you will know a life of humility with joy, a life of difficulty, yes, because it involves serving others and involves suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Life will not be easy, but it will be so good. Because you will have a God who cares for you, who gives you strength, grace, moment by moment, day by day. Last point in closing. What does this life look like? How will I know if I've truly come to this life? I think I would just ask one question this morning to kind of give you a diagnostic as to the extent to which you are walking in this life that Peter's advocating here. That one question diagnostic I would give you is how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? How much do you pray? 
How often do you talk to the Lord? How often you talk to the Lord is an indication of how much you depend upon him. How much you think you need him. How much you think he can help you. How much you think he loves you. How much he can hear you. How much he answers. If you are not praying, it is a sign that you are self-sufficient. That you are proud. You are not leaning upon the grace that God gives. But the more you pray, beloved, the more you see that moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, you need to cry out to God every moment saying, Lord, I need your help. This is hard. I need your help. I don't know what to do. I need your help. I'm being tempted by sin. The more we will, in humility, cry out to God in prayer, the more we will know the grace of God pouring into our lives and the more you can be confident that you truly are living a life of humility and dependence upon God. And so, beloved, let us be a people, let us be a church, a congregation where we are all clothed in humility toward one another. We were all together depending upon God to satisfy all of our needs. And as we do that, we are loving one another from the heart, confessing our sin to one another, humbly serving one another, being the people that God has called us to be as this holy nation, as this royal priesthood. Would you go to God with me and pray right now? Let's pray that God would create in us hearts of humility. Would you confess before God ways that you see that you are not humble? And would we also cry out for the world around us as we see the needs that are uh, in our nation and in the world around us? Let me open us in prayer, and then I invite you to pray along with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we do pray that your word would do its work in us this morning. Lord, we confess as a people that we are a proud people. And that we, in our own strength, in our own flesh, can never make ourselves a humble people. Lord, we need you from the beginning to the end. And so, God, would you come just because of your abundant mercy, just because of your steadfast love? Would you come and would you grant us humility this morning so that we can know the joy of living a life in humility and in communion and fellowship with you. Lord, would you hear our prayers now as your people?